Well, good morning, church. It's great to be able to gather with you again this morning and turn in the scriptures. Before we do, um, if you'd like to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to begin our time this morning. But uh, just to orient us a little bit, here in January, we take a little time to spend some time in what we call our January series. This January, we're spending time looking at the persons of the Trinity and the church. And we're using the Apostles' Creed to help us with that. I just want to give us a little bit of time to orient us to the Apostles' Creed. Um, Perhaps many of you have have heard of it before. Some of you have maybe been in traditions that has has really paid attention greatly to the Apostles' Creed, perhaps even recited it week after week. Perhaps some of you this morning are like, I feel like I've heard something about that before, but I'm unfamiliar. Well, hopefully just a few moments of orientation will help us out. The Apostles' Creed, uh, though it's named... After the apostles, it wasn't written by the apostles. And right now, some of you are like, that's great information. I don't even know what you're talking about when you're saying the word apostles. That's okay. We'll catch you up. Uh, The apostles are a term that we use for the disciples who walked with Jesus. And having walked with Jesus, uh, the Lord taught them his gospel, gave them his teaching. And then the apostles went out by the commission of Jesus to make that teaching known and to establish The church. So the Apostles' Creed is a creed that contains the Apostles' teaching, which is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, while it wasn't written by the Apostles, it was a creed or a confession that was spoken by a person who was about to be baptized, to identify themselves with the gospel that it proclaims, with the church that has gathered around that confession. And it is the most widely used confession of the church, the most universally accepted of all the creeds or confessions. Now, such creeds were, they were very prevalent in the early church from really the earliest days. In fact, one of the things that surprised me as I was studying scripture, having sort of grown up with the Bible my whole life, was that uh, it is believed that many of the more poetic passages that are contained in the letters in the New Testament were actually first hymns or songs or creeds that were shared by early Christian leaders, perhaps even the apostles themselves, and they were recorded for us in the scriptures. So some of the places we would call them the Christological hymns or the earliest creeds. So what are these creeds and and why are they named after the apostles? They are the creeds which contain for us the the foundational teachings and summaries of the gospel as it is recorded for us in the scriptures. So we have the Apostles' Creed. Uh, You could break the Apostles' Creed into four little sections, and that's what we've done for this four-week sermon series, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Church. And so last week, Joel Fair uh, led us by simply reading it, for us this morning, I'd like to invite us to read it together. Just follow along. Let's do our, our reading together this morning. I believe we've got it on the screen behind us, so we can see uh, that it begins with, I believe in God. Let's share together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this faithful summary of the scriptures. We thank you for a creed that we can learn from. But Lord, we thank you for what is authoritatively, inerrantly yours, which is your word itself, to which this creed attempts to bear witness. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us by your word, that your spirit would work among us, and that your gospel would affect in everyone, myself and all of those who are gathered, Good news, the proclamation of the word to our hearts would do the miraculous work of creating life, and nourishing the life that you have already begun, so that we might be kept for you to the end. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through the essential teachings contained in the Apostles' Creed about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. We're going to do so by summarizing the essential doctrines and then walking through a few of the key scriptures that are given to us about Jesus. So in summary, we could say this. This morning, we're going to preach about Jesus That shouldn't be too big of a surprise this morning. In fact, our our sound guy this morning told me that if I begin to not preach about Jesus, that I would see him slowly bring out his iPhone and he would bring up the app that we use to control the soundboard. He'll turn it off and then start looking for other churches. So this morning, we're going to preach about Jesus. But I hope that by preaching in this way, in, in a very doctrinal I like words. I like words that don't sound like words we normally use, so I'm not really too scared of them, you know? And so I'm going to use the word doctrine. But so all of us are clear and we're on the same page. The word doctrine just means teaching. But when we talk about doctrine, it sounds weighty. It sounds heavy. It sounds sounds rich, thick, full, deep, right? Well, the, the teachings about Jesus are rich and full and thick and deep and valuable, So this morning we're going to pay attention to the doctrines, the teachings about Jesus. Now it's noteworthy that the majority of the teachings about in the Apostles' Creed are about Jesus. This shouldn't be surprising since most of the teaching in the New Testament is about the core truths of Jesus and his gospel. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's through Jesus that we're brought to the Father. It's by the word and work of Jesus that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're truly and fully, we come to know who God is. So let's pay attention to Jesus, the Christ. And that's where we begin. The creed believes begins like this. I believe in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, the very first words of the New Testament. I believe in 
Jesus Christ is the summary that we're given in the creed. The words in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. At the end of the genealogy, in I believe it's verse 16 or so, we see that Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Which begs the question, why? Why is he called the Christ? What is this word? Well, Jesus is the Christ. Christ is a Greek word. There's a Hebrew word that means the same thing. It's used, means Messiah. Christ means Messiah. In English, if we were to use these words in just sort of everyday use, we would refer to an anointed one, one who has been anointed to something. Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, is speaking specifically in the scriptures of, of one who is a king or a priest. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the anointed. We're saying that he is the king in the line of David. That's why the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And in this line of David, he is also the anointed son of David. Just as David was anointed by the prophet Samuel as king, Jesus as a descendant of David has been anointed as king by God. And we see, if we continue to read the New Testament teachings about Jesus, that he's not only king, he's actually the anointed prophet, and he's also the anointed priest. He is the high priest, king, and prophet. So when we confess Jesus Christ, we aren't confessing Jesus's first and last names. That can be kind of confusing sometimes. That's how we say it. Perhaps it would be valuable to say Jesus the Christ. We're confessing not his first and last name, but rather that he is the God-given, God-ordained, God-anointed Christ. We're confessing his role. Jesus is his name. And Christ is the, the office that he Occupies. We're making a confession not only about who he is, but also what he's been sent by God to do. So Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who's sent by God to do the work of God, to occupy the office of king as appointed by God. Now, we spent a lot of time on this reality in our recent series. You might remember that the two most recent series uh, sermon series that we've been through were the way of the king and the forever king. When we're using the word king, we're talking about the anointed one. We're talking about the Christ. We're talking about Jesus Christ in whom we believe. So my hope is that this confession, the Apostles' Creed, would about the Christ would continue to call us to what we've learned even in recent months as we confess Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. Now the confession continues. I believe... In Jesus Christ, his only son. Now his, it's referring to the previous confession. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. Now, what I'd encourage you to do is turn just a few pages over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And conveniently, we're turning to Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Simon Peter replied to Jesus when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? 
You are the Christ. Okay, nailed that one. The son of the living God. This is the essential teaching. That's why we can believe in Jesus the Christ, his only son. You see, the title of Christ had grown through the teachings of the Old Testament prophets from simply a future king in the line of David into, according to the prophecies given by God through the prophets recorded in the Old Testament that we can watch and follow along with and pay attention to ourselves, the Christ is not only a king, he's redeemer, he's a savior, he's sent by God once and for all, to establish and rescue the people from their enemies. He would establish a kingdom in peace with God himself at the center of their lives and at the center of their worship. They're what Joel was talking about when he was talking about the righteousness of God and the justice of God being established. That's the Christ that they were looking for, the Christ, the Son of God. Well, this is what Peter's confessing in Matthew chapter 16, this You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the promised one. You're the one who was to come, according to the prophets. Now, what happens is the expectation of the people was not perfectly oriented to the understanding of the prophets or of God himself. Even Peter in this passage fell short of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in that Jesus was not only sent as God's human instrument, to occupy a temporary role and title that then would be passed on where we used to talk about the great kings in the line of David. Maybe we would talk about the great kings in the line of Jesus. No. Jesus is, it turns out, God himself. He is God the Son. And having rescued the people not only from their external enemies, but also from their internal enemy, sin. And he would establish a kingdom of peace with himself at the center of the people's worship. You can see it fulfills everything that they were looking for, but greater. And with an eternal, God-centered perspective. The astounding reality of Jesus, the only Son, is that Jesus the Christ is himself God. When God promised to send a king, who is promising to send himself as king, anointed son of God. He's at the center of our lives and of our worship. So when we confess Jesus Christ, his only son, we're confessing Jesus is God. Now the confession continues. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now, this is precious. It's almost like there's a snowball that's being built in there. It's about to add another layer. I just gave an illustration about snow to Floridians. So all of you transplants, I hope you're with us, and that was really helpful. Uh, In the meantime, there's this, like, freezing of... uh, Anyway, we're adding another layer to our understanding of who Jesus is, all right? That he is the Christ, the anointed one. He is the Son of God, He is Lord. Turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus the Christ, 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the essential confession of the Apostles' Creed. Really, it's almost an exact repetition of what's given to us in Philippians chapter 2. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Moses. And in revealing himself to Moses, he gives Moses his name. He told Moses that his name was Yahweh. I am. Now, out of respect for that name, the people of God did not actually say or write that name. But instead, when they came to the places in the Bible, when the name of God was spoken, they would use the word Lord instead. Now, eventually what happens, and this is such a curiosity of our, of our scriptures, is that eventually what began to happen is they began to combine the consonants of the word Yahweh with the vowels that were later added to the scriptures to help them to pronounce the scriptures. So they would use not the vowels of Yahweh, but they would use the vowels of Adonai or Lord as a reminder that when they come to that name of God, they, they shouldn't say it out of respect, but rather they should simply say Lord instead. Now in the Old Testament, in our English Bibles, if you go and and look through, you'll see that often there is the word Lord and it's capitalized, L-O-R-D. All four are capitalized together. And that is there to remind us that this is the name of God, but it's written in that way very often out of that continued tradition of respect. So the name Lord when it's used like this, means more than master. Now, the word Lord is used to mean master in Scripture in a number of places. Capital L, maybe lowercase l, but lowercase o-r-d in the Old Testament and in the New. But in Greek, where they don't continue the practice of capitalization, still the people would refer to Lord to refer to the name of God. So consider Philippians chapter 2 again. Jesus bears what name in this passage of Scripture? What is the name that has been bestowed on him that is above every name? The name that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is whom? You see, it's not a what, it's not just that he's master. It's not just that he's king, it's that that he's Yahweh, he's God, he is the Lord. So when we confess Jesus is Lord, we're confessing that Jesus is that great name before which all of creation bows. Jesus and the Father share that gloriously eternal name. Jesus is Lord. Now, in all of this talk about Jesus being God, bearing the name of God, we're still talking about the same Jesus, right? Well, Reed wants to call us back to remember who Jesus is, that Jesus, this Jesus who is Christ and Son of God and Lord, is also the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Essentially, the way that we could summarize that today is Jesus is incarnate, Jesus is God in the flesh. 
Jesus is the one and only God-man. Turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. I love this passage. It's so powerfully tactile, all right? You can touch it. You can see it. It's fleshy. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Sometimes this happens in the Bible, where the author seems to fall over himself with words and keeps like repeating himself because there's something he wants to make sure that you really actually kind of like saw and heard from him. That's what we've seen. Like... That which we've looked at, you know, what we've actually touched, what was made manifest to us, John says. Like, just say it once, dude, except for he's trying to communicate something to us. The apostles saw him. They actually touched him. He who was with God has been manifest among us. Jesus took flesh to show the Father to us. Think the same author, John, in John chapters 3, 13 through 17, where he reveals the Father to the disciples. He says, they keep saying, show us the Father. He's like, hello? <laughs> and John finally gets it and writes this letter, and he says, what we saw, what we touched, we make known to you. This is why the Apostles' Creed makes such a big deal of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit and birth through the Virgin Mary. Jesus is unlike any other human in that he is born from God. But he's also unlike any other way that we've ever known God before because he was born a woman. Jesus is literally God in the flesh. Now, this doctrine has come under attack countless times in history. That doesn't seem to make sense. How could God be born? It's impossible that God could become a human. But let us remember that the whole of our faith is impossible. It's all ridiculously impossible. It's foolishness to the natural mind. I mean, we also believe not only in the virgin birth, but also that there's this guy named Jesus, you know, the one that was born of a virgin that died and then three days later woke up and walked out of an now empty tomb. Yeah, we believe that too. All kinds of crazy stuff that are impossible to the natural man. But as with all of the cases of the miracles of Jesus, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The question is not do we believe in this or that miracle. The question at its core is do we believe in God? It's essential that we not abandon this doctrine of incarnation along with the virgin birth of Jesus because If we confess it another way, we're essentially confessing Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. It's because Jesus is God in the flesh that he was able to live the righteous life that no other human has ever lived. 
But it's also because Jesus is God in the flesh that he's able to take our place and take our punishment, the punishment of sinners, so that humans who, tr- who trust in him can be forgiven of their sin and receive his eternal life. This is the testimony of the apostles, which they've seen, which they've touched, and now they have made known to us through the word. When we confess Jesus conceived and born, we confess that Jesus is God in the flesh incarnate. The creed gives us another core doctrine, another core teaching, building, snowballing, showing us who Jesus is. Jesus has suffered, rejected, crucified, and resurrected. Now we come to the core of Jesus' work. We have to go, in the creed it says, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. It's powerful how the The creed, it declares the historicity of the faith by situating it alongside a historical person. Think about it. Pontius Pilate. Really insignificant. Certainly not a particularly spiritual person. What in the world is he doing in this spiritual book of ours? Well, it turns out that Pontius Pilate, his name is recorded in our most basic creed because Pontius Pilate was a real historical figure. So too is Jesus right alongside and next to him, along with the whole of the work of his gospel. Part of our confession in confessing it in this way is to confess that this is not just a spiritual reality that means a lot to me. It's to confess that this is real. Look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 verse 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise. I think it's one of the clearest, compelling explanations of the gospel that we have recorded, and it's recorded by Jesus himself, and it's his first exclamation of the gospel that we have. And I think I gave you the wrong reference. 31. Thank you. You guys are following along. It was a test. Really? You passed. Some of you did. Uh, Great work. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. In this passage, you can hear the four essential key aspects of the work of the gospel. Look at it. He suffered. He was rejected. He died, and he was resurrected. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, is the way it's said in the creed. He was rejected as the people freed Barabbas and cried, crucify him. He died as he hung on a cross, having received the full wrath of God and the death in place of sinners. And God raised him from the dead in victory over sin, death, and the devil. The Apostles' Creed offers a correction for us, a correction that we need, particularly in our cultural moment. The gospel is not what that spiritual idea means to us. It's not an internal subjective experience alone. If we're asked, what is the gospel? We cannot begin our answer with the words, well, to me, 
the gospel means. You're like, I would never do that. Do you know how many times I've asked people, what is the gospel? And they've begun with some variation on that. Well, to me, the gospel means, I'm like, look, if you're, if you're struggling that hard, just memorize it. Because Jesus has told us what the good news is. The good news is that he suffered, was rejected, that he died, and he resurrected. That's not something that just means something to me. Oh, it does. But that is something that is outside of me, that I can see, I can hear about, and that was recorded for us. The work of the gospel is an objective reality, external to us. It is what it is. It happened in history, right up next to that same time when we have stuff recorded about Pontius Pilate. It was worked by the historical man, Jesus. The apostles have recorded that work for us, and and they've done that. So that external reality, the work of Jesus and his suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection can become good news applied to my soul. So that then, having confessed the external reality, I can say, and the gospel means so much to me. Let me tell you about it. We can confess. When we confess Jesus, we have to confess that he suffered, he was rejected, he died and resurrected. When we confess that, we're confessing the historical reality of the spiritual truth of the gospel in the historical work of Jesus. Now, before we move forward to the final teaching about Jesus, uh, I want to suggest to you two things. First of all, that you read Mark chapter 27, and I think I've got the reference right this time. Mark Matthew. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) Testing. You guys are like, it doesn't have 27 chapters. Great work. Um, Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27, we have the the record of Jesus's death. We have the record of his suffering. We have the record of his humiliation, the shame that was laid on him. And friends, those aren't just details to the count. They are his working of the gospel. You know what's due to me? Not just punishment, not just a debt that I'm owed. I, my guilt is shameful before the Lord. So you see, he didn't just take my guilt. He took my shame. He took my humiliation. He took people that should mock how foolish my sin is. So I encourage you, go to Matthew chapter 27 and spend time there. Pay attention to the details and see Jesus working the gospel with every word. Suffered, rejected, crucified, resurrected. Now there's a detail that is in the creed that is actually helpful. It shouldn't be passed over or simply retranslated. It says he descended to the dead. It's the way that we record it. Together at Cross Point Coast, we say he descended to the dead. Some use the words he descended into hell. But this language can be confusing, and often it's even mistakenly understood. Some who use the, the language of descended into hell are referring to 1 Peter chapter 3. We don't have time to look into it closely this morning. We have in the past when we preached our way through 1 Peter But in that passage in 1 Peter, it speaks of the proclamation to spirits who are in prison. 
But the passage is not speaking about proclamation that happens in a geographical location called hell. It's speaking of Noah's proclamation to the people in his day to flee the wrath of God and take refuge with him in the ark, which is God's provision of redemption. And he's actually saying all of that to tell us, to preach to us and to all who would read First Peter about our need to take refuge in Christ as it's symbolized in baptism. So the proclamation happened actually while those people in Noah's day were alive. And today, because they did not listen, their spirits are in prison. And they are under the wrath of God. Those who received the warning, they refused to listen, and so did not obey and died, and their souls are now imprisoned in death. But what are we confessing when we confess about the gospel We're not confessing anything to do with Jesus' proclamation of something to a people who are in hell. It has to do with Jesus' real death. It has to do with Jesus receiving, when it says he descended to the dead, really receiving the full curse of death in the place of those he came to save. He didn't just partially die. He didn't just receive a little bit of the curse because after all, he was righteous. He's just dying in the place of sinners as sort of a symbolic act. He really did descend to the fullness of what death would mean. It is right for us to confess that Jesus descended to the depths of death for us. And among many who confess Jesus descended into hell, that is what they mean. So it's not wrong to confess if that's what we mean by it. It's also right to say that Jesus brought good news to the dead. For that is what we are apart from Christ. And his good news was proclaimed to my dead heart. And the Spirit brought life. And I believe. So that when we confess Jesus descended to the dead, well, it's not accurate to say that Jesus descended to the geographical place called hell. He just hung out there on Saturday preaching and then went to heaven, it's gloriously true that he suffered hell. He suffered the curse of death, the wrath of God, in the place of all who believe. And then the creed continues by telling us that he ascended, he is seated, and he's returning. This section of the Apostles' Creed ends by proclaiming these three things. Listen, Jesus ascended into heaven, He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, for the sake of time, we won't linger here long, but I want to take us over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to look at just the first four verses there. And I know I've got this reference right because it has been so precious to me since I was a late teenager. I remember when I first really saw these words. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I remember when that first struck me, that the birth, life, crucifixion are historical reality with implications for my life. I knew that. 
I knew that the gospel was external to me and historical and had, had been taken by me through faith, right? But I remember when I realized that his ascension, reign, and promised return are for me as well. To take hold of. Because Jesus is ascended and because of the great exchange of the gospel, Jesus took my sin that I might have life in him. My life is hidden or kept with Jesus wherever he is. And this passage, in a time, especially as a teenager, I wasn't sure where I was, right? I wasn't sure who I was, let alone where I was. But this passage gave me a grounding. It gave me a footing. It told me not only who I was, but where I was. My life is hidden, kept with Jesus, where he is. Now, much like any precious possession that we want to keep safe, that we want to hold on to, we ought, we ought to be genuinely concerned, where is it being kept? Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, I cannot think of a place in the entire universe than is more secure than at the right hand of God in the very throne room of God. If you're going to steal something, the one place, my guess would be, that you do not have access to is the right hand of God in the throne room of heaven. Like, go for it anywhere else, but I would not recommend trying to steal something from there. Whatever is there is safe and secure and kept. My life is hidden, secured, kept, not by my faith or faithfulness, but by Jesus' own life. I remember that, being a part of the struggle. Man, I'm a mess. Is there any hope for me? And the answer in this passage, if Jesus is on his throne, your life, Jeremiah, is hidden with him. And when he appears, my life will appear also. Our life is kept with the king, Christ. And when he returns for his people on that day, we will appear with him in glory. When we confess Jesus ascended, seated, returning, we confess that our life, our hope is secure in him. Even as he reigns over the universe from his eternal throne, our life is secure. So this is him. This is Jesus laid out to us, I think, faithfully in the Apostles' Creed. Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, incarnate, suffered, rejected, crucified, resurrected, ascended, seated, returning. These are the essential realities, the core doctrines or teachings of the Apostles about Jesus. I think what's so helpful about having something like a creed is it can operate like I just now did, like little words that you can memorize. And then as you memorize those words, you can begin to put them in order. Like, yeah, I guess the, the suffering and rejection has to come before the crucifixion, the crucifixion before the resurrection, of course, the resurrection before his ascension. And I can sort of put those words in order and I can remember them. I can carry them with me. But here's the power of the whole thing. The simplicity of the way the creed can be broken down is that you can then dig into any one of those words. We could preach entire sermon series. We could go deep into books. We could work our way through devotions, devotionals. We could pray together at length through each one of these core doctrines of our faith. But 
there is still a question. There is a phrase that we did not spend a great deal of time on. Three times, the creed says this, I believe. Do you believe? Being here this morning is part of helping you to answer that question. And I I do hope it has been a help to pay attention to the scriptures, to spend some time thinking and praying together. You see, our, our, our faith is birthed in the presence of the preaching of the gospel, wherever that may, preaching may take place, because the gospel is the word of Jesus Christ. And our faith is nourished by the preaching of the gospel, because the gospel is the word of the risen Christ. And our faith is preserved by the preaching of the gospel, even this morning, as we remember and get to situate ourselves in the Christ who has kept us, the Christ who is seated, the Christ who is returning. And so here's what we should do. We should believe. I pray that God would use the ancient creed in the coming weeks and months and years that we would believe this morning. This morning you're like, I hear you, I believe you, I said it earlier and I actually meant it. But if you believe, in the next few moments we should humble ourselves in prayer before what we have heard about this Christ. In a few moments, we should take communion afresh, remembering that he has suffered, rejected, and then his body was broken and his blood was poured out. And then we should turn in song and we should sing these words afresh and anew, having been nourished and knowing that we are kept. And here's the beauty of the thing, as we spend weeks and months and years with this creed, that we would do so until the church of every time and place are gathered into Christ's kingdom face to face. And that ancient creed would become for us a visible, tangible, present reality as God births us, nourishes us, keeps us by his word. Heavenly Father, we confess our belief. This is the purpose of the creed but we are also taught what we are to believe, and we are called this morning to believe it. So, Lord, I pray that if there is one here this morning who does not believe, that you would call to faith, that you would humble in prayer and bring about the birth of belief. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. We trust you that you would nourish us. We trust you that your word, according to your word and by your word, you would keep us. We pray all of these things in that great name, the name of Jesus, the Christ, our Lord. Amen.